When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Arsenal Women Arsecast on Arsblog.com, the best podcast dedicated solely to the Arsenal women's team, which we can say with great confidence because we are the only podcast dedicated solely to the Arsenal women's team. And this month, well, I was going to say this month we've got a special episode. They're all special, obviously, but um, for obvious reasons, we're going to have an Aussie theme to this episode because it may not have escaped your notice that Arsenal have upped their Australian quota this month. Um, We already had the manager, Joe Montemoro, um, the assistant manager, Aaron Dantino, uh, Caitlin Ford joined in January. We've also now added Steph Catley and Lydia Williams to the ranks. Um, As it turns out, Arsenal's player liaison officer, Lauren, is also Australian and she arrived before all of them. So this is just wonderful for her at the moment. Um, so I thought we'd have a we'd have a little talk about um, Steph Catley and Lydia Williams, and also, of course, this month uh, Australia and New Zealand won the bid to joint host the 2023 World Cup. So lots of Australian uh, football in the news at the moment. And here to discuss that with me, uh, welcoming back for her second appearance on the show is Australian women's football writer for The Guardian, ESPN, and The World Game, Samantha Lewis. Sam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back. It's always good to be here. Thank you. And, and you know, when, when we had you on in January to discuss the Caitlin Ford signing, we, we did tease that we might have you back on in the summer because there might be a couple more Australian players joining. So our sources were pretty solid on that. <laughs> um, before we get into Arsenal specifically and their new Aussie recruits for this summer, um, I just wanted to ask a question, I guess, about the wider picture here. Um, because it's not just Steph and Lids that have joined uh, this summer. There's also uh, Mackenzie Arnold has gone to West Ham. Um, Ella, oh God, I'm going to butcher this surname. Ella Mastrantonio has gone to Bristol Very good, yes, good. Got there. Uh, I'm not going (laughs) to say Jacinta's surname. Um, She was already (laughs) here at West Ham. But there's also Hayley Razo at Everton, obviously Sam Kerr joining Chelsea, Chloe Legazzo. Lots and lots of Australian players coming to the WSL. Why is that? Well, I mean, I think there are some larger, as you say, sort of machinations happening in women's football in terms of sort of domestic leagues that have been sort of bumble, sort of bubbling away for a couple of years. But it seems like now has been the ideal opportunity for all of it to happen. Um, so I think, particularly for the Matildas one of the things that they have been really encouraged to do by their head coach and also by our federation is to try and get as many consistent competitive match minutes as possible. 
Um, the vast majority of our Matildas have, over the last several years, been sort of jumping back and forth between the W League here in Australia and the NWSL in the United States, trying to cobble together what feels like a full year's worth of, of playing, of, of mm. match minutes. Um, but that back and forth is becoming a real um, a real problem, particularly for players who are at international level because it's just, ironically, it's actually too much football. Um, a lot of players experience burnout. A lot of players experience fatigue and a lot of players experience injuries. I mean, Steph Catley is actually a really good example of this is that mm. when she was sort of in the middle of her back and forth across these two leagues, she developed a stress fracture in her foot and that took her out of the game for a long time. So... I think all of that sort of that sort of wider context for for these players over the last few years has really contributed to why so many of them are now going particularly to Europe um, and especially to England because England is sort of becoming the the powerhouse league of the continent there it's the it's the first fully professional women's league which is obviously hugely appealing for players over here who have had to try and weave together some sort of professional career in football by jumping across leagues for so many years um, it's got fantastic facilities. It's got some of the best players in the world. You know, it's just it's just the place to be. And I think for so many of our Matildas now, this is the, the thing that they have been wanting for their footballing careers forever. And now they finally have the chance to do it. And, uh, and, and of course, there are, are a couple of Australian coaches were here already as well. So Arsenal, Joe um, is here and he knows Steph. Um, and Lydia very well and Bristol City have Tanya Oxtoby, um and so they've brought in an Australian player as well um, as, as an Australian Sam how, how do you feel about this this kind of exodus of sorts um, I guess and, and like you said obviously a lot of the Matildas were kind of playing in the US anyway but are, are you excited to see players coming to Europe or do you feel more I guess sadness that they're that they have to leave Australia <laughs> I mean, there, there are pros and cons. Um, I think ultimately it's a really good thing. And the reason I think it's a good thing is because what Australian football needs to be focusing on is producing Matildas. And the, the sort of the nature of our football ecosystem is that if our national teams are doing really well, that enthusiasm tends to sort of filter down into our grassroots and into our development pathways. So if we're able to have a really successful Matildas team, that's going to have wider sort of ripple effects on the rest of our landscape here. And that's ultimately what we want. And that's, that's I think, the, the ultimate purpose of what our professional leagues in Australia should be is developing the next generation of Matildas. So while there was quite a bit of anxiety when we started to see the, the Sam Kerr's sort of moving across to Europe, meaning that they wouldn't be appearing in the W League anymore. I think that's actually a, a sort of a, the silver lining of that is that it gives far more opportunities to local players. And these are the players who are needing to step up and, and fill in that next generation of national team players. So while the Matildas are sort of overseas and getting so much better because they're competing against the best players, they're competing against players who they're going to be facing at the next Olympic Games, the next World Cup, we like we have now the, the sort of the space and the opportunity to focus on who's going to come next because there's a lot of discussion in Australian football media about the fact that this generation of Matildas are our golden generation. This is the generation who have a, a serious chance at winning medals and winning 
World Cups, but we don't really know who's coming next. And so I feel like that's sort of the next conversation that we need to be having here in Australia. So while there's a little bit of anxiety in terms of like, you know, perhaps because the Matildas aren't going to be in Australia anymore in the W League, we're not going to maybe have as many people watching. Um, I think that's sort of a shorter-term hit that we have to take in order to focus on the longer-term goal, which is producing more golden generations. That, yeah, that's really interesting because the debate, I guess, is happening almost the other way around here. In fact, I was talking with some people yesterday who are kind of talking about, you know, there's more foreign players coming into the WSL, particularly Australians. I mean, Arsenal haven't signed an English player. I, I understand that might change this summer, but Arsenal haven't signed an English player for about three and a half years now. And, and we're kind of having the debate the other way around because the Lionesses have been getting better and so we're kind of doing the, well, who, who are we kind of creating this league for? Is it to make the national team better or is it to make the league better? And so it's, it's really interesting, I guess, that, that you guys are having the conversation in reverse. Mm. I, I, in terms of Arsenal signings then, let's start with uh, Steph Catley, um, which was a signing which was one of the worst kept secrets, I think. <laughs> in women's football, although transfers are becoming, um, you know, are becoming worse and worse kept secrets. But very, very highly rated left back. I, I know that Leon came in very, very strongly for her as well, which is pretty much the highest compliment I think a player can get. Why is she so highly rated? What would you say her qualities are? So personally, I think that she is Australia's best ever left back. Um, I know that there's been a lot of hype around Ellie Carpenter, but I think that Steph Catley, because she's a bit older, she's a bit more mature, she's a bit more experienced, she's much more well-rounded in her game. And I, I really I struggle to think of, uh, you know, more players out there who are so solid in that left-back role um, who would be able to sort of overtake her on rankings. And it's sort of it's frustrating because she's not really included in conversations about, like, the best the best players, the best left backs, the best right backs in the world. Um, and, and that sort of, I guess, speaks to her personality a little bit as well. Like she's quite, she's very, very modest. She, I don't think she really recognises how good she truly is and how much of an impact she's had, not just on the Matildas, but on basically every team that she has ever played in. Um, you know, I think she, particularly since about 2016, 17, I think she has really sort of come into her own and she's become the quintessential sort of overlapping wing back that has come to define, I think, modern football. Um, she really, I think, came into her own under Joe Montemuro when he was coaching Melbourne City. Um, that that team, it had Kim Little, it had, all, you know, it had a, just an absolute stellar cast of, of players. But Steph Catley was really, really important in that setup. And I think she really recognised what she was able to offer under Joe. And that's probably one of the big reasons why she's followed him over to Arsenal. Um, and in the last couple of years, as she has gotten older and wiser, you know, she's become the vice captain of the Matildas. She's captained Melbourne City to, I think, sort of two, two doubles. Um, mm. 
And during all of that process, she has continued to improve. You know, her passing accuracy is almost always in the top five of any player on the field. Her reading of space is fantastic. The timing of her runs has really improved. She's fit as hell as well. She gets up and down that field like nobody's business. But she's also really, really sort of steady and calm in that position. And I find with with some sort of, with, you know, some um, wingbacks, they tend to be quite frantic. And the mistakes that you can make as a wingback tend to be quite... Um, jarring and, and sort of almost catastrophic in some cases, but you never really ever get a sense that she's like that. You always feel like she knows exactly what she's doing when she's doing it. Um, so even though her career has sort of been speckled by injuries, I think the last couple of years um, as she's started to sort of um, really lean into her role and to start listening perhaps to her body a bit more as she gets older, she's actually getting a lot better. Yeah, that, that's that's. I mean, having played under Joe Montemoro, as, as you say, you'd, you'd imagine he he knows her very very well. But what, one of the things about the way Joe likes to play, I mean, usually at Arsenal, the the fullbacks are usually Lisa Evans and Katie McCabe, who are both wingers um, mm. by trade, who'd never really played fullback before Joe came. Um, and you know, we had Danish uh, left back Katrina Veyer. She was a winger as well. That. This is a bit of a departure for Joe, actually buying a fullback who's a fullback because he likes them to attack so much. I mean, given the way he, he likes his, his fullbacks to get right up, I, I found it really interesting that you referred to her as a wingback mm-hmm. um, because it, it sounds like, and, and from what I've seen as well for the Matildas, that she's, you know, a, attacking wise, that she's really strong as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in one of the Olympic qualifiers that were played here in um, February, she, her and Ellie Carpenter contributed the most assists or the most goal scoring opportunities for um, like across the entire game. So that sort of like just in terms of the numbers that she she generates, she is an incredible attacking force. She can score goals. I think that's probably something she would want to add to her game a little bit more um, because she's got an absolutely deadly left foot. And um, it's just it's so exciting that she's moving to a team that really embraces that sort of style um, and is really going to sort of draw out the best of what she can offer because I think that she's still got room to improve. Um, and now that she's sort of working in a system and alongside players who um, really sort of take a lot of energy from what she's able to bring, I'm like, I'm just so excited to see what she does. And um, moving on from from Steph Catley to Lydia Williams, which was um, a signing that, that wasn't quite as well known about, um, actually, and I, I don't think it was quite as long in the making. Um, you know, 32-year-old goalkeeper, very experienced now. What can you tell us about Lydia, Lydia Williams? What can we expect from her? Yeah, so Lydia has been sort of, she's been the starting goalkeeper for the Matildas for a really long time. Um, she, I think perhaps one of the reasons why Europeans aren't so familiar with her is because sort of like Catley, she's been jumping back and forth across um, the NWSL and the W League for a number of years. And she's sort of never really found... Um, She's never really settled in one particular spot. I mean, she sort of came through um, Canberra United here in the W League back in the early days, and that's where she really sort of found um, uh, the sort of the, I guess, her confidence in in being a goalkeeper. 
Um, but she, going all the way back to sort of in terms of World Cups, like she went to the World Cup in 2007 when she was 19. Now, she didn't make an appearance there, but she, that's how sort of long she has been in the system. Um, she's 32, so in terms of goalkeeping years, I think she's really sort of coming into her prime. Um, she's always been very strong in the air, I've found. And, but I, I think one of the things that she's improved on most recently in the last few years has been her footwork. Mm. Um, it's something that Ante Milicic, uh, the current Matildas coach, um, really enjoys. Is a goalkeeper who can play with their feet. Um, and her distribution has become a lot better as a result of that as well. You, you know, you very rarely see her these days sort of miss kick or miss pass the ball to somebody. Um, I think maybe one of the things she, she could improve on a little bit more is, is uh, penalties, is stopping mm-hmm. penalties. Traditionally, she hasn't been um, especially good at that, particularly thinking back to, oh, my God, the trauma of the uh, 2016 Olympics. Um, we won't go there. Um, but, yeah, she's, she's, always, um, she's always been involved in very successful teams and I think that she's, a, she's an incredible leader in her position and, um, I, I'm, like, I'm also just so excited the fact that she's gone there with Steph because they are best friends and they've been playing together at Melbourne City for a number of years they've been playing together at the Matildas for a number of years so they have just a really fantastic understanding and chemistry with each other on the field so I'm really hoping that that sort of Joe is able to see that and is able to incorporate that into the rest of the side as well and I'm interested in, in what you were saying there about her distribution which which it kind of sounds like maybe isn't something that came naturally to her obviously because eras change and a lot more is expected of goalkeepers now Mm. at at Arsenal Joe likes to rotate his goalkeepers actually which is why Arsenal have usually have two strong goalkeepers competing and Lids will compete with Manuel Zinsberger who we brought from Bayern Munich last year Uh, I I spoke to Joe last year about his kind of um, I guess his rationale for rotating his goalkeepers and uh, he said it's basically because he sees them as as footballers and last season he liked Manuela Zinsberger for her short distribution but he liked Pauline Perumanian for her long distribution and he Mm. used to pick them depending on what he felt the game needed so given that we have Manuela Zinsberger, who, who Joe really likes as a short distributor, is, is mm. it's more of a kind of a long distributor, would you say, um, in terms of her kicking? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think um, this most recent W League season, because Melbourne City had a new coach, they sort of encouraged Lids to, to be a bit shorter with her passing. But... Um, again, I mean, the W League is a very different sort of a context. Um, you know, the vast majority of the players in our W League are sort of state league players from sort of local um, local competitions in and around Australia. So they're not um, they're not extremely tall. They're not extremely athletic. They're they're sort of they're the kinds of players that you can play those short passes um, in and around with with little risk. And also, when you're passing to people like Ellie Carpenter and Steph Catley. You know, you know, you're going to be pretty safe there. Yeah. Um, but at, at sort of at stronger in stronger games and against stronger opposition, I think her her longer distribution tends to be quite solid. Um, but again, I think that's probably something that she she will need to work on. And it's encouraging that she's going to a club where um, there is this philosophy in terms of rotating goalkeepers because I think one of the things that tends to happen, particularly with goalkeepers in Australia, is that because there are so few of them, you can get quite complacent sometimes. Mm. And so I think because Lydia has been sort of the clear number one choice for such a long time, it's perhaps made her um, 
sort of lean back on, on her own strengths a little bit without really feeling perhaps like she needs to be um, really competing for a spot. So that's what I'm sort of really looking forward to when it comes to her time at Arsenal is that she's actually going to be pushed to really get better um, in order to sort of secure some sort of um, starting goalkeeper role there. And uh, another thing Joe likes in his goalkeepers, you know, he's, it's so far he signed Pauline Perud-Mannion, who left us this summer, really extroverted character. Uh, Manuela Zinsberger, he signed last summer, really extroverted character. The first time I interviewed her, just after we bought her, she said at the end of the interview, I want to be loud, um, was what she said. <laughs> and I think it's fair to say she's kind of lived up to that. Um, I, I'm interested in what type of a character uh, Lids is. Does, does, would, uh, particularly, you know, off the pitch, do you think she fits this kind of extrovert, almost slightly mad mould? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. She has a huge personality. She's really warm. She's really engaging. She's really funny. It's really difficult to not love her. And, and her, her and Steph Catley are besties, as I said before. And if you look at their social media, that tells you basically all you need to know about the absolute shenanigans that they can get up to together. Um, and yeah, she will definitely fit in. And I, I think it, it's so, it's so encouraging that that's, it's the kind of environment that allows that, that allows mm. for her to sort of have her personality be as big and as bold as it is. Cause she's a, she's a really um, fascinating human being. Like she has a mm. really interesting backstory. Um, she is really passionate about lots of things outside of football, but also passionate about things that football can achieve off the pitch. So I think being in a club and being in an environment surrounded by people that encourage that and want to want her to, um, sort of bring that out of herself is just it's it's great and it's going to make her a better player and a better person which is what football is all about and can you can you expand a little bit on on kind of I guess her, her interests away from football I know she wrote a book earlier this year but also I know, I know she's like quite outspoken um, actually I guess outspoken isn't really the right word but um, her, her father was Aboriginal, right? And mm. I, I know she she talks a lot about, uh, particularly about racism, um, not just in Australia but more widely. Can yeah? Can you perhaps just talk a little bit more about about some of the some of the things she she typically kind of talks about and gets involved in? Yeah, so Lydia is a, a proud Aboriginal woman. She grew up in a little town called Kalgoorlie, which is in the deserts of Western Australia. Um, her father was Aboriginal and her mother was actually African-American. So she sort of has uh, her fingers in two pies in that sort of sense. Um, and it's been an, a really interesting moment, you know, in the last couple of months with bl the Black Lives Matter movement and seeing the way that Lydia has navigated that publicly. Um, she has always been really passionate and quite outspoken about um, sort of Indigenous issues. And she recently joined a campaign called We Got You with a number of other Australian athletes, which is sort of a platform um, to amplify discussions um, and issues around diversity and inclusion um, and race. So she's, um, she's, she's been also involved, um, she's been part of the executive committee of the PFA in Australia for a number of years as well, the Players Union. Mm. Um, and one of the 
one of the things that I have always really loved and admired about Lydia is that all the way back in 2015, um, when the Matildas were really, you know, they were sort of not really paid much attention to here in Australia. Um, after they got back from the World Cup in Canada, the Matildas actually went on strike because they were scheduled to fly to the United States to play a couple of friendlies. But by the time um, in between returning from Canada and leaving for, for those friendlies, their contracts actually expired and they didn't have um, any sort of um, security around, you know, things like travel arrangements and pay and all that sort of stuff. So they actually went on strike. They boycotted going across to the United States and those stadiums had already been like completely sold out. There was a lot of money that was involved in that. And Lydia was the face of that strike. You know, if you, mm. if you Google the Matildas strike 2015, you'll probably see photos of her fronting up to the media. She was the person who stood up and, and um, sort of spoke on behalf of the playing group. And that was a really, and I interviewed her about it recently for a series with the PFA actually. And she said that she was incredibly nervous and she didn't really recognise how significant that moment was until many, many years later, because now we're seeing the power that groups of athletes have when they sort of have this sort of solidarity and they stick together and stand up for each other. So I really feel like Lydia has been, and her, her career generally has been a really nice um, sort of a, a, a roadmap for the the women's game generally in Australia. Mm. You know, she's been part of a lot of really important moments. Um, and so the fact that she's sort of able to take a lot of the lessons um, that she's learned by, by growing up in football here in Australia and take it over to England where perhaps some of these issues are a little bit more pointed and need perhaps more discussion publicly by players, particularly in the women's game, I think is, is really, um, it's really exciting. Interesting. Uh, really interesting stuff there about, about the strike. I didn't know about that. There, there, something mm. really similar happened with the Ireland national team over here um, a couple of years ago. And actually the legendary Arsenal goalkeeper, Emma Byrne, was the absolute face um, of that as well. Really, really similar dispute. So um, a, a little bit of a line through history there for, for Arsenal in terms of their goalkeepers. Um, I want to kind of move on a bit more generally um, now to the 2023 bid, uh, the successful 2023 bid for Australia and New Zealand to host the Women's World Cup. Um, obviously, huge few weeks for Australian women's football with that news. Um, you know, in, in recent months, I've upped the amount of women's football journalists I follow um, in <laughs> Australia for obvious reasons. But, you know, I've, I've, I've known people like Anna Dong for, for quite a few years, really, really central to that bid so you know I have like a good idea of how exciting this is for you know you guys that work in women's football in Australia but what's the reaction been like more widely is there is there a big awareness of this yet that that Australia has this kind of big moment in women's football now um, yeah, I mean, I think there has been. The, the problem with Australian sport, you know, we, we sort of have this reputation as being the sporting capital of the world or the sporting country of the world. And, and that sort of is a difficult thing to navigate for football because football is a little bit lower on the pecking order than you would think if you were from yeah. a nation where football is just the main sport. So we're competing with codes like rugby league and Aussie rules um, and cricket for, you know, column inches and media space on the TV. Um, and that's why I think 
how, you know, winning this bid is so important is because football has always felt like it needed to be bigger than what it was um, because it's the world game. It's the game that has the most number of participants at grassroots level. It has all this potential to be the biggest sport in our country, but it's never really quite reached it. And we've had a number of sort of moments where it felt like that could have happened. Um, you know, 2015, when we hosted the Men's Asian Cup, it felt like that perhaps could have been a moment to um, sort of to send football into the mainstream, but that didn't really happen. But I feel like because the Women's World Cup is particularly the way that our bid um, addressed it, it's really tapping into this wider sort of zeitgeist around women's sport generally. And I think Australia has really taken up women's sport um, with a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, so I, I sort of feel like now with, now that we have this goal on the horizon, we've got, um, we've got something that we know that we're working towards and we know that it's something that based on all of the history of the last couple of, of women's world cups is going to bring so much attention and so much investment to the game here. So mm. really now I think we're at a point where we need to be strategic and we need to be smart about how we build up in the next two and a half years, next three years towards this particular tournament, but also what we're going to have in place for the kind of legacy that it's going to leave. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I think generally people are, are really, really excited here about the fact that we're hosting it. I mean, some people in other codes perhaps don't recognize how big a deal it is that mm-hmm. it's a, it's a world cup. Um, but once it's here and once we have all of the fans who come here, once all of the States, um, sort of put down their, uh, put down their arms and, and all come together to support, um, to support this one tournament. I mean, I think that the, the potential that football has in Australia after this is just, is limitless. And, um, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, zooming back in away from the wider picture, um, I'm, I'm interested in how you felt in the days leading up to the decision, because for quite a while, it seemed like Australia and New Zealand were basically being given a clean run to this. Um, Brazil pulled out quite early, and that's a country I'm quite close to, and that doesn't surprise me at all. They've hosted loads of things recently, Men's World Cup, Olympics, Copper America, and frankly, their economy was going down the toilet before COVID because they mm-hmm. have an insane president, so <laughs> they don't have the money to do it. Um, and then Japan pulled out, and so it was just Colombia um, and Australia and New Zealand, and everyone, myself included, kind of thought, well, okay, that's Australia and New Zealand then. But then mm. reports started to emerge that Colombia might have more backing than we thought. Um, And there were some interesting debates, actually, about the political machinations of that and whether actually you should always just give the World Cup to the best bid or whether it makes more sense, perhaps, to give it to a country like Colombia, who, frankly, their their women's football scene is is really poor. But do you Mm. give it to them because, you know, to try and improve that? And, and things got a bit tense. Um, and, and actually, in the end, Australia and New Zealand's bid did win it quite comfortably. But mm. how, how did that last few days leading up to the decision feel like to you? And then when the decision was actually announced? 
I mean, I have never been so nervous for anything in my entire life, I have to say. Um, but particularly the, the sort of the 24 hours leading up to the vote, when we started to hear these stories about UEFA voting for Colombia and all that stuff with Greg Clark and, mm. like, that was sort of the point where I was like, oh, my God, it's happening again. Because I don't know how many people listening will know this, but... In 2010, when the Men's World Cup uh, bids were awarded to Russia and Qatar, Australia actually had a, a, a bid that we put in for to host that tournament. We spent, I think it was $45 million on our bid and we got one vote. And so that has sort of had a, a hugely traumatic, um, deep scar in Australian football for a number of years. And so when all those stories started to come out, um, about UEFA voting for Colombia, there was this real sense in Australian football that it was like, oh my God, it's happening again. This is, it's old FIFA. It's just, it's all the politics. It doesn't matter how good our thing was. You know, they're just going to do whatever they want. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so that 24 hours, I'm pretty sure I went through like the seven stages of grieving at some stage because I was just convinced that we, that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't win because it was, it was just the, it was history repeating itself. Um, but the, the sort of the moment that it happened, I, I was on a Zoom call with a lot of my friends um, based in Melbourne and, and in New Zealand, all the friends that I went to the 2019 Women's World Cup with so that we could sort of experience that moment together. And I just remember bursting into tears because I was so relieved. I was so relieved for the bid. I was so relieved for the bid team because they'd done so much work for so many years to try and get it to this point. And I was just, I was relieved for football because it was the moment that I think people realized that actually FIFA have changed and FIFA are, are wanting to, to sort of start this new decade and this new era off on the right foot. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, the other interesting thing I think is the fact that Europe and South America, these two sort of traditional uh, male footballing continents, they were overpowered. They were outvoted by Africa, by North and Central America, by Asia and by Oceania. So that sort of suggests to me that there might be some sort of larger political shifts happening in terms of global football as well. Um, but I, I sort of took issue as well with the fact that the the justification for voting for Colombia was that it was um, a sort of a development opportunity, which mm. I totally understand and I agree. I think that, uh, you know, a tournament like this absolutely presents um, developing footballing nations with that, that sort of the exposure and the investment. But that's part of the reason, I think, why we teamed up with Oceania. You know, Oceania is a place that needs football development as well. Mm. I don't know how many people have been focusing on, on that aspect of our bid. Um, but there are a number of nations in Oceania and in the Pacific which, who, which love football, um, particularly nations where a game like rugby league is a very traditionally masculine sort of a sport. So a lot of the women there, for example, in Tonga, I was lucky enough actually to travel to Tonga um, last year with the junior Matildas and they've been focusing on women's football for the last 10 years and their women's national team is actually pretty good. So the development opportunities for football in, in the Pacific in Oceania is, is really important as well. 
Um, but yeah, but I, I think sort of generally the, winning the bid is, is really important, not just for Australia, New Zealand football, but for our region generally. I mean, I think Asia tends to be sort of forgotten about when we think about the future of the game. You know, mm. there are hundreds of millions of people in Asia, the vast majority of them who, who love football. Like this is the untapped market of the game. This is the market that we need to be really reaching into. And I think Australia is in a perfect position to be able to do that, particularly in the women's space, um, because we've got a country like Japan, for example, who have traditionally been sort of a powerhouse of Asian women's football, but in the last couple of years have sort of declined internationally. And so I, I feel like this is the, we're just like, the, the moment is exactly right. These next four years are so, so important. And if we're able to, to pull off the tournament as well as we, we know we can, football, I think, not just in, in the Asia Pacific, but I think football generally around the world will be like, it will change forever. And uh, just as a, that's, Kind of a nice segue into, into my last question, really. Um, the the actual the bid, the technical report on the bid um, for Australia and New Zealand was, you know, was was marked very very well. It was kind of as close to perfect as as, as I think you can expect a bid to be. Um, in terms of what was in the bid, I guess to bring the discussion full circle, um, by the end of this summer, most of the Matildas are going to be in Europe. Um, and there might be another one in North London um, in the next couple of days, not at Arsenal. Um, but mm-hmm. is is there anything in the bid? I guess, is there an aim in the bid that um, in the future, the Matilda squad won't necessarily all have to come to Europe because the domestic picture will be better? Or is it, or is that seen as a good thing in terms of the national team to have um, to have a bit of a diaspora is it, I, I guess what I'm getting at is what is the kind of the vision for domestic Australian football uh, with this bid? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it's something that we're actually still talking about. It's something that we're still trying to, to figure out because of the last sort of 10 years, there really hasn't been much of a vision for football here. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, that's an entirely different podcast episode, I have to say. But um, I think what the bid offers is an opportunity for us to actually come down on a certain side in that discussion. Mm. Um, personally, I think the W League, it needs to be, sorry, ignore my dog. The that's W fine. League needs to be um, a development league. We, we don't have the sort of the domestic economy and our clubs are not lucrative enough to be able to compete with your, you know, your Manchester United's, your Bayern's, your X, Y, and Z, but that's fine. And, you know, that mm. is the, like, accepting that that's our place in the landscape, I think is fine. So if we're able to um, develop a, a really secure um, player development pathway here and if the W League is the platform from which more um, more talented players can leap from and they can move to your United States or your Europe's um, and develop even even further and then filter that talent into the national team. Like I said before, it would just contribute to the sort of the cycle that we, the, we need to sort of start developing here. So even though... I mean, I think at the moment we're, we're still sort of stuck between figuring out what the W League needs to be, what its purpose needs to be, and particularly how it fits in with a couple of other domestic leagues around the world because we're still sort of, we, we're still wanting our Matildas to be able to come back if they choose to. Mm. Um, but I think what's happening in terms of those other leagues is that they don't really care about the W League. They're going to mm. do their own thing. You know, you see an NWSL who are expanding, you know, they're going to be adding more clubs, they're going to be adding more 
rounds, they're going to become a fully professional league at some point in the future. So I think the W League needs to sort of perhaps stop thinking of itself as playing second fiddle to a lot of these other leagues. I think we need Mm. to sort of really lock down what it is we want to be and what we want to do um, and go full steam ahead because the the next three years, you know, the W League is, is going to be the platform where we could see a couple of players who take the field in 2023 coming through this system that we've got. So we need to actually be really smart about it and we need to sort of get cracking, I think, because, you know, the, the clock's ticking and 2023 actually isn't it that far away. Fascinating stuff. Um, Sam, thanks so much for talking to us um, about this and, and no doubt there will be, uh, and, and I'm not kind of hinting at anything in the transfer window or anything, but no doubt there will be further cause to invite you on the show <laughs> um, again, um, particularly before 2023. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm really, really happy for you guys that you got the bid um, over the line. But thank you so much for your insights. No, thank you. I'm happy to come back anytime. And please, everyone, come to Australia New Zealand. <laughs> I will put you up in my house. It's going to be the best time. Okay, there you go. That's quite the offer. So thanks very much to Samantha there. And stick around because after the break, we'll be hearing from Lisa Evans on this month's edition of Teammates. Okay, joining us on this month's edition of Teammates is Arsenal winger slash fullback Lisa Evans. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Okay, let's get straight to brass tacks. I'm going to ask about 15 or so quickfire questions about your teammates. I've done this with Leah and Katie so far. I'm happy to divulge their answers if you want. But without further ado, let's start. Who is the best dresser in the squad? Wow. <laughs> I'm going to say I'm going to say Leah Williamson. I feel like she makes the most effort on that front. Okay. Do you want me to give an explanation or do I just have to no, leave no, it? No, 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 no. That, that answer will suffice. Um, Leah Williamson also said Leah Williamson, by the way. Yeah, I knew she would. I knew she would. <laughs> who's, who's the best singer in the squad then? Uh, I would say... I would say me or Louise Quinn. I'm going to back myself here. Okay, fair enough. I'm um, going to say, I think Louise is good too, though, actually. Lu- Louise, okay. Yeah, she is good. Um, so who's the worst singer then? Um, oh, I'm going to say Bev, only because I just don't feel like she's musically very gifted. 
Okay. Um, I'll let you tell her that. Um, who's the biggest complainer in the squad? Biggest moaner? Uh, tie between Jordan and Viv. I'm going to say Jordan. Jordan loves a moan. Fair, yeah. But Viv, but Viv has... honestly, Viv could, Viv could give her a run for her money as well. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that answer has come up. Um, who's the most likely to become a football manager when they retire? I'm going to say... I'm going to say Kim. I feel like, I know she's doing the UFOB with us right now and I feel like it would be potentially her if she wants to. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I imagine she'd make a really good coach. Um, who's the most likely to cry at a film? I'm going to say Beth. She's a bit of a sap. Okay. And who is, <laughs> who's the best trainer? Kim. Yeah. That's an easy one. Everyone Kim said that. by an absolute mile. <laughs> Kim doesn't have a day off ever, genuinely. Yeah, no, no one, on it. nobody else has given that any thought either. That's 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 been Kim straight off the bat. Who's who's yeah. the worst trainer then? Mm, I'm going to say Viv. She's going to hate me for saying that, but it is Viv. Again, you're not the only one to say that. Um, biggest joker <laughs> in the squad? Mm, I'd probably say Dan Carter's up there. Okay, I think myself as well. We were obviously playing pranks on people, but I think Dan. I'll give it to Dan. She's hilarious. Okay, and. If you had to vote for one of your teammates to be the Prime Minister of the UK, who would it be? Oh, wow. A Prime Minister. Oh, that's so hard. I really don't know. Definitely wouldn't be Emma Mitchell. She voted for Brexit. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a hard one. I, I'm going to say Kim again. I feel like she thinks everything through and she's once she dedicates herself to something, she does it 100%. So I'll say Kim. Fair. And um, who's the loudest in the squad? Emma Mitchell by a mile. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> who, who swears the most? Emma and Katie McKay, both of them. Yeah, Absolute Ka- Yeah, I almost would say Katie's worse than Mitchie, to be honest. K- Katie self-nominated, she said her. Um, yeah. yeah, I think when they're together, it's even just... <laughs> Yeah, even worse. <laughs> and who would you most like on your team at the pub quiz? Um, I'd probably say... Um, that's a hard one. I feel like... Maybe Leah Williamson. I feel like she's up to date and she's quite interested. She likes doing quizzes as well, so I feel like she's probably yeah okay. ahead of the game. She maybe know a few answers. So. Good shout. Who, Sorry, these aren't very quick. <laughs> that's, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. Who's um, who's the hardest? Who would you um, most like to have in your corner if it all kicked off? I know a lot of people have been saying DVD. I do get that. <laughs> uh, I mean, physically, I would say Kim, but I mean, DVDs obviously men- mentality-wise. I'll go DVD. I think she's probably okay. Or Mitch. Or Mitch. Do you know um, Leah? Leah went with Manu Zinsberger because she said that um, Manu's like she's insanely strong, but like she that that she reckons because she's quite calm that actually she'd she'd be quite handy. You know, she wouldn't like lose her head. She'd kind of you know got almost like a boxer's <laughs> mentality going on. Yeah, um, I, no, I can see that. I can see that definitely. She, I mean, she is really strong. I know that, and she's very calm also. But yeah, I mean, I guess it depends what you're really looking for, eh? True, true. And uh, who did you support growing up? Liverpool. Okay, I, I think I knew. And that, Celtic actually. as well, and Celtic. Yeah. Okay, okay. And who was your favourite player, um, male or female, growing up? Fernando Torres. 
I loved Henrik Larsson as well, though, for, for Celtic. Okay, fair enough. Lisa, thank you very much for that. You're welcome. And that's all we have time for, for this edition of the Arsenal Women Askcast. Big thanks to our guest Sam Lewis from The Guardian and ESPN with some really fascinating insights on Arsenal's new signings, Lydia Williams and Steph Catley, and some really interesting insights on the 2023 World Cup bid, which was won by Australia and New Zealand recently. Um, real pleasure to have Sam back on the show uh, and her dog as well. Um, and big thank you to Lisa Evans as well. I, I should point out that Lisa, uh, you know, was ostensibly on holiday uh, when I contacted her uh, to speak to her she was under absolutely no obligation to do so and did so out of her own time so huge thank you to Lisa for that we're going to be back with another episode very shortly actually Pippa's working on something um, I think will be really interesting and really important Um, we hope to get that out to you in in the next few days really maybe a week or two Uh, so we'll be back with another episode very shortly but in the meantime thanks again so much for listening um, and downloading and give us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you get the chance it all really helps and we hope you enjoy the episodes and we'll be back with another one very soon flexibility take yoga want flexibility with your health insurance check out united healthcare insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly medical dental and vision coverage that may be right for you more at uh1.com 